Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. You will not be surprised to learn that today's show consists of two guests in two segments. We'll hear from Michaela Chen on efforts to unionize people who moderate social media content, and then from Micah Herskind on the political economy behind Atlanta's Cop City. You may think that when Facebook or other social media entities delete a post or slap a warning on one, maybe accompanied with a threat or a suspension, it's been done by AI bots. Mostly not, though. Mostly those actions are performed by exploited content moderators operating under ludicrously strict timing standards. They're exposed to absolutely horrific material. There are efforts underway to unionize them, assisted by a London-based NGO called Foxglove. At the beginning of May, 150 African content moderators met at a conference in Nairobi where they established a content moderators union. That conference followed one in Berlin in March. The movement started in 2019 when Daniel Montong, a Facebook content moderator, was fired from a Facebook subcontractor over his efforts to form a union. He filed suit against both Facebook and the subcontractor, Sama, in an Nairobi court. For more on this, here's Michaela Chen, a researcher and advocate at Foxglove, a London-based NGO that's assisting the effort. What is Foxglove? So Foxglove is an organization that at its heart is trying to make technology fair. We look at ways that technology is being used to exploit people, but also beyond that, these massive companies that are using their workers in ways that exploit but really crush them. Um, We've looked at Amazon. We've taken fights now against Facebook. And specifically for the last three years, We've been looking at how there's this invisible force of workers called content moderators. Who are they? What do they do? Where are they? How much are they paid? Those basic issues. So what content moderators are, are they're the essential workers who are keeping the internet safe. And I think a lot of people think that when they log on to social media, the images and the videos they're seeing are all filtered through the algorithm. But the reality is there is a man behind the curtain and everything that gets posted actually has to be reviewed by a person. Um, And so for Foxglove, for the last three years, we've been looking at workers in the UK and the US and throughout Europe and Germany. And those workers often are sitting through their shifts. They're heavily traumatized because they are seeing the worst possible content the internet could possibly devise. Violence, it's graphic sexual assault, it's abuse of vulnerable people or animals, kittens, children. So it's deeply horrific. And these people are overworked, they're underpaid, and they're left traumatized because the companies that employ them don't provide real and meaningful psychosocial support. Now, the issue is, is that that's in Europe and the U.S. When you then go to countries like Colombia and India and Kenya, workers are paid a fraction where U.S. workers may be paid 15 to 18 U.S. dollars an hour. Kenyan workers are paid two to three dollars. And they work on shifts where we've been told approximately 50 to 80 percent of the content they see is brutal. It's exceptionally violent, especially where they're moderating content from their native countries and they're seeing videos of their countries and their homes burning. They're seeing war, beheading, sexual assault, violence. This is a particularly live issue in Ethiopia, right? It absolutely is. And one of the cases that Foxglove is supporting is one that's specifically looking at how Facebook has incited the violence and essentially poured gasoline on the fire of an ongoing conflict. And while admittedly, the conflict in Ethiopia is incredibly complex, Facebook has been promoting its profit by essentially promoting content that will 
gather more um, interactions, likes, shares, things like that, which is often horrifically violent content. I'm talking about videos. Uh, one last year was a man being burned alive that was being shared over and over and over again. And so beyond what Facebook is doing, that's also being moderated by Ethiopian content moderators who then are seeing videos of people that could be their family, people that could be their friends and having to go into work every day. But beyond that, the human element of it is that these were students. These were people that this was their first job, that they hoped that working for an American company would provide a really important step in building a future. And what it's left is they now are broken. We've been told many, many times that there's issues of suicidal ideation, substance abuse, people that aren't given supports from their companies. And in doing the ancestral work of ensuring that the internet can be a little bit safer, they've absorbed all of this trauma onto themselves. There's been a lot of criticism about political censorship that these companies are sometimes in partnership with governments, limiting what is available for political reasons. Uh, are we talking about any of this or is this more like just horrific scenes of violence and misery? So that's a really interesting point. And I think content policy is a really difficult thing to, to dig into and it's incredibly nuanced. Content policy is set to our understanding by the social media companies. And what I can speak of specifically is where their failings are directly from Facebook. So one of the examples going back to Ethiopia is how because Facebook devotes its resources on mass to English language, they lose the nuance for any non-English speakers. And considering that it's a way to access the internet for a majority of the world, there's not only this blatant negligence, but the fact is, is that when they're setting the content policies, it's not informed by what actually needs to be done. And so you then get this frustration from content moderators that are seeing language that's meant to incite violence. Things like you can't mention let's kill Tigrayans, but if you use ethnic terms in Tigrinya, that uh, moderators are told to keep online. And so I understand that there is, I mean, we could have a very long conversation about what content should be taken down when it's nuanced and potentially um, suppressing political debate. But I think there are actually overtly problematic examples that we've been shown have remained online. And the biggest one in this case we're supporting is is from um, Abraham, uh, Abraham Mereg, who Essentially, what happened is his father, this brilliant professor at Bahir Dar, in the onset of the war, was targeted for being Tigrayan. And essentially, how he's explained is there were several kind of waves as it was coming up. There was first anger at politicians and then uh, people that were maybe dissenters. And then it got to anybody who was Tigrayan was brought up as being targeted for violence. And really, unfortunately, this brilliant mind had a photo posted of him with these hateful comments spewed about him. And Facebook knew about it. The post was reported. But even then, uh, Facebook failed to take any action on that post that incited and called for violence against a man who was then murdered in front of his wife by a troop of gunmen that came up and shot him in broad daylight. And so there's all of these ways that this one issue of content moderation has this broader um, implications. But the reality is Facebook and TikTok and the social media companies are responsible because not only do they set these policies, they also make conditions where it's not possible for the workers to perform their jobs effectively. Well, let's talk about those conditions. Who are the employers? This is all subcontracted, right? It's not uh, direct employees of Facebook or the other social media companies. How Facebook works historically is they 
won't hire employees directly to moderate the broad amount of its content. They'll go through subcontracted companies, as you've said. Well, we also call it outsource companies. And so in the U.S., that might be something like Accenture or Concentrix. In Kenya, it's Samusource and another one called Majoral, Majorel. But the thing is, is that even though these are, quote unquote, who's hiring the workers, the workers are working on Facebook and TikTok systems. They're working based on Facebook policies and they're moderating Facebook content. So at the end of the day, Facebook is able to put this so-called shield to try and make it seem like an arm's length. But we've spoken to moderators who were trained by Facebook staff, who are visited and monitored by Facebook staff who work on Facebook systems and ultimately are making Facebook money. There's a large gap between what Facebook et al. pay these subcontractors and what the workers actually receive, right? So we've never actually seen a copy of the contract that Facebook has. One of the things that in corporations they benefit off this level of secrecy. And so I believe there was previous reporting that suggested what the contract was in the U.S., but to this day, we don't know the exact details of what goes on in the Kenyan contract between Facebook and its subcontractors. There's been some excellent reporting done by Time, and in speaking about the contract that's been done, we know that Nick Clegg, one of, I believe he's the global uh, VP of global operations for Facebook, that his pay packet is approximately the same as the entire amount that Samosource, Facebook's Kenyan partner, is being paid. What are the working conditions like? The worker sits down at a computer. What happens for uh, the workday? I don't think it's surprising that this is the new iteration of colonialism. It's it's digital colonialism that's farming out labor to black and brown faces. And realistically, what happens is workers will go in. Uh, many of them have traveled from their home countries to be in Kenya, so they're precarious. They're supporting often their families of parents, grandparents, children. And as I've said, they're paid between 2 to $3 an hour or less. But beyond the pay, beyond the 50 uh, to 80% workload of graphic content per day and the lack of proper mental support, there's also the fact of metrics that are put on the workers. And so a lot of this, I apologize because it's, it's really jargony, but if you think about the old school factory system, everything that a worker does is measured from the second that they log on to the second that they end. And they are expected to perform under metrics that are frankly inhuman and limit any ability to meaningfully moderate content because they have requirements of how long they have to spend viewing their content. Um, something that's called average handling time, AHT. So they're really only given, uh, I think at Facebook, it was something like 50 seconds. Um, but we've heard other reports that really it's, it's actually less than that. It can be 10 to 15 seconds to, to view content, which is looking through whatever post or video they've seen, trying to apply the policies that they have to memorize by heart, which they get new policies on a very, very frequent basis updated, and then making a decision to quote unquote action the content, either um, removing it, keeping it online, keeping it online with a warning. Now, the step above that is we've been informed um, through the reporting by time that there is a de facto policy in place that with a video, Facebook content moderators only can watch the first 15 seconds of the video and the last 15 seconds of a video. And if you have an hour long video of somebody doing a political rant, it's a pretty ridiculous standard to be measured by. Some people were said they'll try and scroll through the thumbnails. Some people will say that it means that this policy was you know, made public. And so people will just put 15 seconds buffer at the start or the end of any given video. Some people will say even beyond that, you still can see these screenshots of pretty graphic or, or brutal violence. I'm speaking with Michaela Chen of Foxglove, one of the coordinators of their efforts to assist the unionization of social media content moderators. 
a lot of us have experienced, I certainly experienced this myself, that I post something to Facebook and it gets either uh, noted or uh, deleted or I get a threatening message from Facebook. I'm going to be, you know, thrown to the wolves if I continue to post <laughs> things like this. They strike me as utter misinterpretations, uh, like somebody who just didn't understand what I, anything was going on. It just seemed arbitrary and often kind of stupid. But the experience one has is that machines are doing this to you, not that people are doing it. But you know, part of the reason for what seem like arbitrary and stupid decisions is that these people are who are moderating this stuff. And it's people, not just AI bots are doing it, right? They're just working under the most incredibly rushed and oppressive circumstances. They, that It's not possible to make a rational decision under those circumstances. Absolutely. And beyond that, it's difficult under the best of circumstances to do your job when you're having a bad day. But imagine you're suffering through ongoing PTSD. Imagine you're not able to get the help that you need. Imagine on top of that, that it's compounding where you don't know if the next video is going to be one that will be horrifically violent and will damage you even that little bit further. But on top of that, imagine that you then have these restrictive policies that tell you, well, if you don't do this video in 10 seconds, you're going to be fired and you're going to be deported. If you don't do this video in 10 seconds, you're not going to be able to pay your rent. You're not going to be able to feed your family. It's absurd and terrifying pressure beyond which, I mean, I've given examples of Ethiopia. We've talked about things that are going on in Germany, um, which it was individuals who were um, Turkish that were moderating Turkish content after the recent earthquakes. But we've also worked with moderators reviewing content from the Ukraine war on the front line and then having to interpret Facebook's policies in that environment where it was ever changing. The circumstances were horrific and the violence they saw was unimaginable. And so it is an incredibly complex thing where I think in a vacuum, you think, well, of course, like, of course, I meant that as a joke. And of course, it's just a machine that's sorting this out, but it's not. It's always going to be a person. As much as we joke about ChatGPT taking our jobs, it is nowhere near sophisticated enough as any of its makers would want you to believe. The reality is it is a person that has to sift through the sewage of the internet to make sure that we are all safe under horrific conditions with little to no pay, with little to no support, and with the entire pressure of everything they want to do their job so well, but they just don't have that ability to be able to do so because of the larger system of exploitation. Now, you mentioned ChatGPT. They're also now using content moderators to train ChatGPT because of its uh, tendency to blurt out rude and racist and uh, horrifying things, <laughs> not knowing any better. Right. So we've we've had some conversations about that because people had to train ChatGPT. It didn't just pop up as it was. And I think while people talk a lot about the ethics of ChatGPT and being able to save people on the on the other side, the users how ChatGPT is an ethical system for its users. The reality is like every other technology, it had to be trained. Somebody had to feed it the information of violent imagery, um, super sexual content. And someone had to sit there and say, this is okay, this isn't okay. And those data trainers often existed under exploitative conditions, much like content moderators. And so it's funny because the titles may be different, but the core of that job, exploiting people for a tech company to profit, that line seems to remain the same. Yeah, the workers have been fighting back now, right? Uh, so we've had some efforts to unionize. Could you describe what's going on with that? Absolutely. So there have been efforts to unionize. It actually really started with Daniel Motuang, who began his case almost a year ago now, uh, when he was originally fired for attempting to start a union at Samosource. It then happened where Samosource claimed it was made redundant after it claimed that it had ended its content moderation uh, business with Facebook, although there are some pretty strong allegations that this was in response to this original lawsuit. Um, and so essentially after forcing uh, around 350 people out of a job and potentially deporting 
um, Ethiopians to some pretty dangerous circumstances among other immigrants who were working there. People were frustrated and there was a larger effort, a, a historic effort of African workers, of Kenyan workers, to assert their rights under the Kenyan constitution. And so it is really the first of its kind where content moderation is such a unique job. It's been historically classed as kind of call center work or, or various other things. But it's more than that because it is providing this emergency service. It's, it's providing this necessary and real work, which is particularly skilled because we've been told, for example, let's say you have a song. The song of itself, there's nothing in the lyrics that would flag anyone's attention. But if you're a German worker, you know that that was used as Nazi propaganda. And so the work that content moderators do across the world is incredibly nuanced, incredibly skilled, and wholesale underpaid. The fact that in Africa this step was taken is historical because the workers we speak to talk about how if they're out of a job, it's not only that they won't be able to pay rent, it's that... They worry about the high cost of living, as everyone else does, but also about their immigration status, about whether they'll be targeted, about what their safety is. It's a particularly precarious movement that now about 150 people have joined to start a union to demand recognition for themselves and their rights. There was a conference in Berlin for content moderators around the world. Uh, what happened there and uh, what did they talk about? So that's a great question. So in Berlin, it was a similar movement where it was one of the first times when outsourced content moderators working for the major companies, so Majoral, Majoral, um, and CCC TELUS joined together with workers who were directly hired by the company in TikTok and being, were able to not only discuss their common issues, but how they could reach across um, to help each other. It was a huge moment of worker solidarity in trying to move things forward, but also in trying to recognize that this is skilled labor, this is professional labor, this is often preying upon precarious individuals who are hired on annually renewing contracts that depend on work permits. And so it's inspiring and in equal parts horrifying about how deep this web is, but it was an amazing step of getting workers together in a room because also, and to take a step back across the board, these companies also will give workers these particularly strict non-disclosure agreements that essentially say they're not able to talk to anyone about what they've seen in the course of their job. Many people will feel like they can't talk to their friends or their family, that they can't get help. And so they're seeing videos of sexual assaults, beheadings, mutilations, torture, and they're not able to say anything to anyone. Additionally, we've heard stories across the world in both Berlin and in Kenya about how there's very little time to read the contract. There's no independent legal advice given. Often it's not someone's first language the contract is given in, but they're still expected to sign to be able to get their job. So it's predatory. It's predatory, it's exploitative. And these summits these movements are the start of this change of workers fighting back for fairness and for justice. Okay, and finally, where is this uh, struggle going? I mean, what, you know, this Berlin meeting happened. What's the future look like? So there was a meeting in Berlin. There was the summit in Kenya as well that recently happened. I think the future is kind of multifold. I think the biggest thing is it's a show to everyone that feels like they can't speak up, that they've signed a contract, that they're going to lose their job. There's a saying that history doesn't repeat, that it echoes. And we've seen time and time again, the struggle for workers' rights. It doesn't end just because we've moved online. All of this evil has just taken a new face. And what we hope is that this fight continues and just gets stronger. The social media companies themselves, their reputation um, isn't what it was a few years ago. They're, they're really um, contending with a lot of reputational issues and financial issues, too. Um, so they're not uh, the masters of the universe, it seemed like, uh, you know, five years ago. 
That's a funny thing because even recently there was the quote on uh, Ted Lasso about how Facebook is just for grandparents and for racists. And that might be true, but it has multiple forms of how it's used throughout the world. It still has a particularly damaging impact and in inciting violence. And so as much as I would love to say that social media companies are, are obsolete or waning in their power, I don't know that that's true. I think they always just find a new iteration. And with that iteration comes someone new to have to work that job. The biggest message out of all of this is that workers deserve to be treated fairly and justly. And the social media companies, these billion dollar companies, need to pay. That was Michaela Chen, a researcher and advocate at Foxglove, a London-based NGO that's assisting in the effort to unionize the exploited workers who moderate social media content. I asked Ann Newman, who was on this show in February discussing her reporting on the Ethiopian Civil War, about Facebook's alleged contribution to the carnage. She says there's evidence of the company tolerating incendiary posts not only in Ethiopia, but across the region, including Sudan, Egypt, and Somalia as well. A December story in The Guardian reported that Facebook let an inflammatory post stay up for four months after it was reported to the company. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the slow movement for string quartet by Anton Webern from his romantic youth performed by the Emerson Quartet. Webern, a socialist in his 20s during the Red Vienna era, sadly became very receptive to Hitler a decade later, even though the Nazis thought his style of music was decadent. I feel like there may be some of that sort of thing going around now. The large, persistent protests against the development of a huge police training facility in Atlanta, known as Cop City, have gotten wide coverage. The cops have greeted the protests with predictable ferocity, most infamously in the murder of Manuel Tortuguita Terran, who was shot 57 times while their hands were raised in the air. Less covered is why the installation is being developed. How does it fit into the broader political economy of Atlanta, which once had a reputation, justified or not, for tolerance and enlightenment? My next guest, Michael Herskind, is an organizer who wrote in the issue for Scalawag, a site that offers a radical view of politics and culture in the South. The word scalawag originated as a term for white Southerners who collaborated with Northern Republicans in the Reconstruction period. Clearly, their use of the term is an appropriation of what was once a slur against people who struggled against the white supremacist antebellum order. Micah Herskin. First, the basics. What exactly is Cop City? We've heard a lot about it, but what precisely um, is it all about? Cop City is a plan that has been designed by a mix of state and corporate actors to take roughly 380 acres of city-owned land just outside the city limits of Atlanta. It's currently forest land in a majority Black neighborhood and area of DeKalb County. Um, and the plan is to take that land to lease it to this private entity, the Atlanta Police Foundation, for them to cut down the trees and replace it with a massive, noisy, toxic, $90 million police training facility. Um, it's known as Cop City because the plans for this facility include literally mock buildings, you know, mock parking lot bank, that sort of thing for cops to actually train in and, you know, simulate various urban warfare settings. Practice shooting people, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There are so many outrageous things about this. I'll take them one by one. But 
one of the first, like why 300 acres of urban forest? I mean, that, that's a very precious uh, formation in a large city. Why this? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a bunch of reasons. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in the coming months and years, we'll learn more. Um, but for now, I think a couple of the reasons are one, um, this is city owned land. Um, and, you know, cities are always looking to cut costs and do things cheaper. And, you know, of course, we're living in an era of, you know, extreme austerity. And so the fact that this is already city owned land, I think is a really big deal for starters. The fact that it's in a disinvested area already is a big part of the story. So there's an adult prison nearby, a youth prison nearby. Um, there's been various sort of industrial waste producing sites near this land. This is really an area that has been extracted from. There's been a lot of environmental racism there already. It has one of the most polluted rivers in the country running through it. And so it's an area that really is in need of investment and protection. And the way that they're choosing to sort of repurpose this land will do the exact opposite. I think that one other really important reason that maybe hasn't made its way into the narrative as much is that this is land owned by the city of Atlanta, but it's outside city limits in unincorporated DeKalb County. That's one of the counties that Atlanta is in. But what that means is that the people in this area don't have any direct representation on the city council. So they don't vote for anyone who is making the decision about what happens with this land. And so really, I think the city originally viewed it as an easy way to take city-owned land, transfer it into these private hands. And I think that they thought that this might happen relatively quietly because it's this polluted, disinvested area where the people who live there don't have the same representation. And of course, you know, that's not how it played out. Elsewhere, uh, the city has used greenery as a gentrification strategy. Not uncommon. A lot of cities do this. They're not using it in this case, though. Originally, the plan was just they were basically signing this blank check for the Atlanta Police Foundation to take this land, do whatever they want with it. After a ton of pushback, um, you know, when the plan was first being heard and sort of moving its way through council, eventually they came to this supposed agreement where they said, okay, the, the center is only going to be built on 85 acres of the land. For the remaining acres, we're going to, you know, beautify it and there's going to be parks and there's going to be community space and a trail, whatever, you know. And, and, and of course, none of this is binding. None of this is actually in the lease. This is just what they're saying. But the language that they are using around this project definitely suggests that they are viewing this land in part as an investment. And so, you know, you have the city transferring this land to the Atlanta Police Foundation. So public to private transfer of control of this land. Just next door, you have DeKalb County, land that is part of the same forest. DeKalb County is trying to swap some of this public forest land with this developer, Ryan Millsap. And so taken together, you have this huge plot of forest land that is steadily working its way from public to private control. And I do think part of that is to sort of serve the area up for development. Atlanta has been the site of so much rapid development, enormous public subsidies for various commercial properties and, and major developments. People have been pushed out of their homes. Parks have been a huge part of that. So the Beltline is a major project that is supposed to be this over 20 miles of sort of walking loop around the city. It's had a major green gentrification effect where people, you know, housing values have risen, rents have risen in the in the area surrounding it. And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely part of this broader development strategy. Why do the cops need this? I'm sure the Atlanta Police Department is not exactly lacking in resources. Yeah. The answer they would give you is that their current facility is incredibly dilapidated. You know, they don't have anywhere to train. Right now, they're renting space at this um, local college for their training. Um, and so, you know, they would tell you, oh, well, we just, you know, we just need a new training facility. Of course, if that was the case, then you could do a whole bunch of things, including, you know, just tearing down the current one while you rent space somewhere else and rebuilding in that same place. Um, and so, you know, it's clearly not just about police training because there are a million places that you could do your basic training. I think there's a couple different reasons that they want this so badly. One has to do with actual police capacity. So I do think in the wake of the uprisings of 2020, police forces across the country found themselves overwhelmed in some ways. Cop cars burned, windows got smashed, um, you know, and I think that there is a recognition that, you know, in an era of increasing inequality, much of it manufactured by the same state actors and corporate actors who are pushing through Cop City, there are uprisings. And so I think part of it is like a true infrastructural capacity investment in the city's policing. The other part of the story, though, is an investment in the image of the city's policing and in the image of the city as a safe place for people with lots of money to come and turn that money into more money. Um, so right on the heels of the uprisings, essentially, 
you had what was called what was known as the Buckhead Secession Movement. So this area of the city, this neighborhood Buckhead, very white, very wealthy, essentially in the wake of the uprisings, threatened to secede um, from the city to take 40% of the tax base with them. Is that real? Could they have done that? I think that there are a lot of reasons that it never wor- would have worked out. You know, there are very practical c- considerations around how would taking on the city's debt work? Um, you know, how would all the bond issues get sorted out. The school system would have been the biggest things is how do you separate from Atlanta public schools? I think that there were a lot of ways that the city could have made it very painful in practice for the area to actually secede. More than anything, it was put forward as this wedge issue as a way to sort of consolidate power around this moral panic of crime and of, you know, people street racing and water boys in the streets. And it was really this clear instance of People in Buckhead and a lot of the corporations in Atlanta are based in Buckhead using this moment to say, hey, we are in utter chaos and you better crack down on this. Otherwise, we're going to leave. And, you know, whether that was going to be possible or not, it certainly, I think, felt real and it felt scary to a lot of actors who are very invested in Atlanta. And so I think that Cop City became the way of addressing that and saying, hey, no, look, we are locking down this city. We're locking it down for you guys. You don't need to be worried about anything. Atlanta takes your interests seriously, even if that means, you know, a bunch more money for cops in order to lock up a bunch more people. And now the cops already take up about about a third of the city's budget, right? That's right. That's right. The cliche about Atlanta used to be this was the city that worked. It was too busy to hate. I don't know if that was ever true, but what happened to all that? <laughs> yes. Well, I don't think that was ever true. In fact, um, you know, that was uh, – <laughs> of, of course, you know. Yeah. Um, there have always been – someone who's written about this is Maurice Hobson. He wrote a, an amazing book called The Legend of the Black Mecca, and he sort of documents how there have always been significant class tensions and sort of the way that the Atlanta way has worked as it's known is that it's sort of this strategic partnership between Black political leadership. The city has had Black mayors since, I want to say, 1973 with the election of Maynard Jackson, and then sort of the white economic powerhouse, all of these various corporations that organize themselves through these public-private partnerships, these various bodies. Those two groups work together in the interest of, you know, really upper class white communities, and then sort of a small upper slice of black communities in the city. And, you know, of course, all the people who are left out to dry in that calculation are poor, working class, black people, black communities, um, you know, anyone who is otherwise marginalized by the state who have, you know, been increasingly pushed and priced and evicted and criminalized out of Atlanta just a couple of years ago was the first time that the that the share of the black population in the city dropped below 50% when it was something like 67 or 68% um, just a couple of decades ago. So there have been, you know, really measurable outcomes of sort of this existing ruling class orientation, you know, known as the Atlanta way. The um, 1996 Olympics were crucial to this history. I recall talking to Jerome Scott from Project South at the time, and it really sounded absolutely brutal what the city was doing to clear things out for the 96 Olympics. So how'd that figure in this history? In a lot of ways, you can draw a direct line between what you see in the Olympics to what you're seeing now. In the lead up to the Olympics, you know, Atlanta really wanted to paint this image of itself as a world class city, as, you know, the home of the New South, where a bunch of people could come, you know, this really attractive area, had a great airport, all the things. In working to attract the Olympics, you know, in order to craft that image of itself as a city that is, you know, safe and welcoming to tourists and big events and big money, what they essentially did is they, to rehabilitate or, you know, to shape the image of the city, tried to clear out all of the poor and black and working class and homeless people, you know, who sort of threatened that image of this prosperous city where, you know, everyone could be anything. They tore down a bunch of public housing projects and built new Olympic infrastructure. They tore through neighborhoods like Summerhill and, and, you know, built a new stadium. They built a new jail. The Atlanta City Detention Center opened in 1995, I want to say. Um, and it was referred to by someone who was, you know, working for this group at the time as the first Olympic project finished on time. They passed new ordinances criminalizing homelessness. They bought homeless people one-way tickets out of the city. So it was really this image to either push people out of the city or lock them up in jail. Either way, make it so that no sort of poverty or racism was visible in the city. Now you flash forward to today... 
Atlanta continues to host these major events. They have the 2026 World Cup coming. They were working really hard to bring the 2024 National Democratic National Convention. All of this goes together in sort of crafting an image of the city that is safe for these corporate interests um, and really locked down in a way that can continue to attract upper class white communities. A lot of tech jobs are pouring into Atlanta. And so, you know, it continues to be about who do we need to eliminate or push out of the city in order to make it welcoming to the type of people that the ruling class, you know, is comfortable with having here. I'm speaking with the Atlanta-based organizer and writer, Mike Herskind. As a result now, we have one of the most unequal cities in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It just keeps getting worse. There's any signs of anything improving or it just uh, keep getting more and more polarized. What we're seeing is the outcomes of decades of what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment, essentially, you know, the state um, retreating from or, you know, fully, fully moving away from any sort of provision of, of social welfare. And, you know, in turn, really building up its carceral police jailing capacity to sort of control for and manage the outcomes of that inequality. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's really extreme. If the city leadership has its way, that pattern is going to continue. But what I'll say is that I think the Stop Cop City movement is really fighting for a different future for Atlanta altogether. I think that, you know, the fight is really so much bigger than just preserving this forest and stopping Cop City. I think that it's brought together people across so many different issue areas and interests. And it's really about essentially, you know, who, who is the city run for and who's going to control the city. Um, and so I think, you know, we absolutely have a chance to turn things around, but that's going to have to come from the movement, not the leadership. I do want to return to that in a bit, uh, but uh, a little bit more on this scheme. Uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation, who are they and why is this being done by a private entity and not the city itself? Yeah. So Atlanta Police Foundation founded in 2003. Their CEO is this guy, Dave Wilkinson. He, you know, is something of a kingmaker in Atlanta politics. He used to work in the Secret Service, you know, has a bunch of really sort of high up connections. They have an immense amount of money, get a ton of donations from these major corporations that are based in Atlanta, like Delta, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Places like Coca-Cola will make a big deal out of like dropping off the board of, of the police foundation back in 2020 or 2021. And meanwhile, a lot of the foundations that are made up totally of Coca-Cola money, like the Woodruff Foundation, are still donating to the police foundation. So, you know, just, just putting that on the record. But yeah, the, the police foundation has an immense amount of money and has an immense amount of influence. They, they're not just trying to build Cop City. They, they funnel a ton of money into the city. So they're paying for cop housing for, for essentially to, you know, to move cops into especially the southwest part of Atlanta, essentially to increase surveillance in, in majority black communities. They pay for and operate um, Operation Shield, which is this network of thousands and thousands of surveillance cameras that are not just, you know, owned by the city, but also allows, you know, any person with a surveillance camera to essentially send their feed into these data centers um, that are, again, run and operated by the police foundation. And so they really just have an immense amount of sway. They were the ones that had this vision as far back as at least 2017. They were pushing for this facility, you know, at this location. They're pushing this because those are the interests that they represent. You know, they represent all of the corporations that want a particular image of order and stability in the city. And the Atlanta Police Foundation is just one of their many vehicles of achieving that. There's something called the Atlanta Committee for Progress, which sounds very high-minded. Um, who, what's their story? <laughs> yes, Atlanta Committee for Progress essentially is another one of the vehicles through which um, a lot of these corporations organize themselves. So it's it's technically a public-private partnership. So it has, you know, not just a bunch of corporate representation, but it also has people from the city. So the mayor is on it. Um, you know, various civic and university leaders are part of it. Um, it's essentially just another formation through which, you know, ruling class actors in Atlanta organize themselves. Back in spring 2021, you know, they were part of announcing and supporting the plans for Cop City from the very beginning. It was their board chair at the time, Alex Taylor, who was asked by then Mayor Keisha Bottoms to lead the fundraising campaign to raise $60 million in private funds for Cop City. Um, and so they, you know, they've really had their hands in this from the start. They're sort of official mission has to do with making Atlanta, you know, a competitive and wonderful place for development and safety and, you know, all of these things. And so they're just really a vehicle through which big money organizes itself to push for the kind of city that they want to live in. 
Now, it's interesting. The uh, the political class is mostly black, right? And then, well, the business class is mostly white. How do they work together? Does one lead? Um, what's the relation between those two entities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's maybe a little hard to say, you know, what the exact dynamics are not being in all of those rooms, even though we, you know, we know that they're meeting all the time. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll give one example, which is that, so, you know, there's sort of this open door between, you know, groups like APF, the Police Foundation and ACP, the Atlanta Committee for Progress, um, and, you know, the mayor's office, city government, they're just in the last couple months, some high profile employees from APF have, you know, taken up jobs either with the police department or in the city. Um, and so, you know, there's this pretty consistent revolving door. You can see sometimes through open records requests, some clear ways in which um, especially the economic elites leverage their power and influence. So, you know, to go back to the summer of 2021, we found through open records request this email from um, the CEO of the Atlanta Police Foundation. He was emailing one of the mayor's sort of like right-hand guys and saying, hey, we know that there's some delay from city council members and from others on this Cop City project. You need to make sure that the mayor calls up the city council members and says, hey, this thing is happening. Push this through. And in these emails, the CEO of the Atlanta Police Foundation is saying, I'm talking to all of these various CEOs, some of which are some of whom are on the Atlanta Committee for Progress. And they're saying that they're really mad and that something needs to be done. And then he forwards this email from someone who he identifies as a CEO of, of a corporation that's based in Buckhead. And it's essentially this CEO saying, hey, if something doesn't change here with these water boys, with the street racing, this was, again, sort of during the 2020-21 uprisings um, and, and the fallout. The CEO is like, if something isn't done, we're going to throw all of our weight behind the Buckhead secession movement. Uh, and so it's this sort of clear threat of like, hey, we are not happy. Do what we want or you're going to lose a ton of your tax revenue. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure that's not always how it works. But that's, you know, one, one example of, you know, how some of this communication and relationships are playing out. And the cops have been absolutely brutal in repressing the protests, right? Yeah. Um, one death, but an awful lot of arrests. Yeah. What, what's the, what have the confrontations been like? Yeah. So, I mean, from the very beginning, cops have shown up to, um, you know, try to crush protests, intimidate people from, you know, from being involved. So on the day of the, on the final vote back in September, 2021, um, that was still during, you know, COVID when people, when when the city council meetings were happening virtually. And so there was no city hall to show up to, to protest. And people were protesting outside of city council members' homes because that's where they were participating from the meetings. And as people were protesting, cops showed up and arrested a bunch of people. And then over the next couple of years, as people moved into the forest, as people have had marches and rallies, cops have often shown up to, you know, make mass arrests, some of which they're being sued for now because there's video, for example, of people being plucked off the sidewalk and then getting written up for pedestrian and roadway, even though there's video of them getting arrested on the sidewalk. I would say some of the most severe repression has played out in the last six months or so. There had been escalating raids by the police on the forest where many forest defenders had been living and sort of participating in the tradition of land defense. But then in December, during a raid, was the first time that people who were living in the forest were charged with domestic terrorism. Um, in January of 2023, cops marched into the forest and assassinated Tortuguita, who was you know, living in the forest as a forest defender. Not only did they kill Tortuguita, but then they framed them for their own murder, essentially, by saying that they were shot at first by this person who was in a tent. And you know, all the information that's come out since then has sort of disputed that narrative. And so you, know, you have that happening and you know, no reliable investigation. It shot like 57 times, right? Or something extraordinary? Yeah, yeah. So I think 14 shots, but I want to say 57 bullet wounds. So like, you know, truly, truly assassinated by firing squad, you know, people who were shooting into the tent over and over and over again, completely imbalanced here. And, you know, and then, of course, they wanted to tell everybody how actually this person deserves to die. Oh, my God, it's appalling. So what's the current state of things now? Is it a standoff or what? Uh, what's happening? On their side, the city or the, the Atlanta Police Foundation has started cutting down some trees. So some trees have been coming down. Um, there's a week of action upcoming at the end of June. And the call, you know, just as for other weeks of action is for people to come to Atlanta to join in the movement. There will be tons of events and protests and actions. One of the biggest upcoming opportunities to really sort of put an end to this thing um, is that so the financing scheme essentially was that $60 million was supposed to come from private donations and $30 million was supposed to come for the city. 
um, that number has now been raised to about 33 and a half million. And the city council of Atlanta has not actually officially allocated those funds yet. And so we expect before the end of June for there to be some sort of vote on actually allocating this money. And so it's going to be a major opportunity to turn out a ton of people, um, you know, everyone co- contacting their council members saying, do not vote for this money. Because if, if the police foundation can't get this $33 million from the city, you know, they, they really can't move forward. Um, and so we do have a major intervention point coming up here. And uh, finally, you said earlier, uh, and I want to develop the point that this movement just isn't about Cop City. It's about a much broader vision of what Atlanta should look like. Uh, Could you talk a bit about what that looks like? Yeah. I I think one of the biggest questions essentially is how do we use public resources? Um, And right now, the way we use public resources is for cops, um, you know, both directly and indirectly, whether it's, you know, through public money that goes directly to the police department, whether it's money that channels, you know, through the police foundation that's going into Cop City, into all these various, you know, surveillance mechanisms. And another way we use our public money is through massive subsidies of private projects. You know, there's been, you know, from stadiums to what's called the Gulch development downtown, um, you know, to the Beltline. Over the past couple of decades, just again and again and again, we are pouring massive amounts of, of public money into projects that line private pockets. Um, And sometimes that happens through transfer of land. Sometimes that happens through, you know, major tax breaks, subsidies on the front end. Um, And so, you know, that's where our public funds are going right now to corporations and to police. Um, And I think what this movement is demanding is that public money goes towards the public good. So, you know, make sure that we have truly deeply affordable housing, you know, housing for all. Just, you know, just last year, over, over the past several years, people have been fighting to turn our city jail, which is almost empty, the one that was built for the Olympics, to turn that into a community resource center to take, you know, it was at that point, like $30 million per year going into this jail, and put that towards community resources that people could actually use to be safe, you know, to actually achieve and transform public safety. Um, And that was supposed to happen, the city committed to that. And then in 2022, under our new mayor, they retreated from that promise, and they decided to keep it open. Um, And so that just right there is an example of where are we putting our money? Are we putting it into public well-being, or are we putting it into jails and handcuffs and cages and surveillance? And I think that's, you know, what the battle is ultimately about. There's the writer and organizer, Micah Herskind. You can find his article on Cop City on the Scalawag website, scalawagmagazine.org. By its own description, Scalawag is a black-led, women-run, nonprofit Southern media. We disrupt dominant narratives with journalism and storytelling in pursuit of justice and liberation in the South. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Burning Building, just out from Lucy Kruger and the Lost Boys. Till next week, bye. Oh no, oh no, oh no Hey girl, let's